Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you. Uh, my name is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors. If it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. Uh, we have got a lot going on this weekend. We've got 75 people like they're making their way back. They may be back already from Mexico. They're down there building houses and showing Christ this weekend. So it's been a great weekend that way. Uh, and exciting news, we are off our water fast, right? We are uh, awesome. We're, uh, yeah, some of you are like, no, I didn't do that. Well, forget about you. No. Uh, for those of us who are coming off, we're excited. So, uh, so uh, looking forward to uh, going back to routines this week. But uh, for, uh, you know, what we're doing is we're raising uh, money for uh, water wells in Africa. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. We've talked about it a lot. But uh, if you want to contribute today, there's a couple ways of doing that. Uh, out in the lobby of the five-gallon um, uh, water jugs, you can drop your uh, offering in there. You can go online. It's a little complicated, more so than it should be. But on the back of our program, it tells you how to, how to make a donation online at our website. Um, and, of course, you know, you can make memos in your checks, that kind of thing. But anyway, excited about that. Uh, a couple of things coming up in the next uh, few weeks I want you to be aware of. Uh, number one is that uh, for those of you who read my ministry update um, letters, which I know is a minimum, but uh, for those of you who do read, at the beginning of the year, I told you this year, one of the projects we're going to be doing um, is we're going to be doing some uh, solar panels and, and the solar structure out in the far parking lot to reduce energy costs and uh, protect the environment and so on, but also can create a great covering for us uh, for uh, shade out there. And so um, that project's going to take about six weeks, and it's going to be starting the next week or two. I don't know if it's next week going to be there or next, but it should be starting soon. So if you park in that far parking lot when you come in, um, you'll, you may see be directed to another parking lot. Uh, we have uh, enough parking, we think, and we've got some creative solutions to, to create more space if we need it. But, um, but I just want to make sure, I'm sure you're aware of it. The other thing is, is we're trying to um, kind of upgrade our Wi-Fi. We, uh, we came in here, we put in Wi-Fi in the building, and we thought we had plenty. But um, we're hearing some, con- some complaints or some concerns that sometimes you try to get on your Wi-Fi, you can't. It, they'll go in streaks like, well, here, like it's all great, and then it isn't. So we just want to have a sense of how much of an issue it is. And so if you uh, attend here regularly, um, or if even if you don't, it's your first time, you can't get on Wi-Fi, um, if you would just write on the back of your Connect card inside your program, just write me a note and just say Wi-Fi. We'll know what you mean. Uh, we're just trying to get a sense of, uh, is that an issue? Is it not an issue? If so, how big an issue? We're going to have some consultants in to figure out how to, how to solve that, because why don't you want to uh, be able to uh, live in the 21st century? Amen? Amen. So, uh, all right, so uh, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now, and inside your program is a message note sheet. It's green and white. If it's your very first time, you'll definitely want to pull that out, but uh, we're going to jump in. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're excited to be here, and most of all, we're excited about you and what you're doing in our lives, so we just want to be open and available. We want you to speak loud and clear, and so we pray today, God, as we talk about this incredible topic of transformation and your vision for our lives, that we pray that you just open up your word in a powerful way, and you speak to us by name in a very specific, individual way about what the next step in our journey is all about, and we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a hot, dusty day. It's, uh, the road is a, a long road. It's a wide road. It's a dirt road, and uh, it's crowded. Uh, the last few weeks, crowds have been gathered uh, more and more to where it's really hard to even get a meal together. And uh, when you move from one place to another, it's just like a swarm. It's almost like trying to get out of a rock concert or something like that. And, uh, but he'll never forget the day because uh, in the distance, he sees this one man kind of swimming upstream, trying to get to them. And uh, the look on his face is a combination, maybe fear. Uh, there's a sense of desperation, um, but determination as well. And he just, for whatever reason, locks on, and you can see this one man just fighting his way, fighting his way, finally getting up to them. And when, they, when he gets there, they find out why he's so upset, that uh, he's got a daughter, uh, just a single daughter. She's uh, 12 years old, kind of pre-adolescent, and she's very sick. And he's taken to all the doctors, and they can't figure it out. Um, and uh, he's really afraid that, that she's going to die. This is sort of his last chance, his last option. And so he's come to them looking for help, knowing that time is running out. So today we're, uh, we are continuing a series that we've been in for the last uh, six or seven weeks that's called Sent Into the Danger. And for those of you who are brand new at Rocky Peak, I want to welcome you, but also uh, quick, just a quick, quick snapshot of this series. This series, it's a study, um, it's a second uh, series of a longer series. It's based on a study 
of one of the most important books in our Bible. It's called the book of Acts, and it kind of documents the rise of the early movement of Jesus from the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus kind of right after that over the next 30 years as, it, as the gospel moves all the way to Rome. And uh, what we've seen, if you've been here in this series, we've watched as this uh, early movement of Jesus, it starts with just a few hundred people, uh, it's growing rapidly into, in the first, you know, 6, 12, 18 months to like 5, 10, 15,000 people. But with the rapid growth has also come increased persecution. And so they've been forced to leave Jerusalem. The Christians have been forced to, to run for their lives to the surrounding counties. But last week we watched as the leader of this persecution, or at least one of the key leaders, a man named Saul of Tarsus, when he's on his way to arrest Christ followers in the city of Damascus, 135 miles to the north, that he has an encounter with Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that changes his life forever. And so with his conversion, it leads to a new time, a new era of peace and rapid church growth again, again in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. And so it also allows for the apostles who've got underground during this time of persecution to emerge. And in particular, the leader of the movement of Jesus at this point is the apostle Peter. He's not going to be free to move around the country again. So he's going to come out and he's going to be visiting these areas around Jerusalem and sharing more of the message of Jesus and encouraging, strengthening these new believers. And so uh, for the next couple of chapters, Luke, who's our author, he's going to turn away from Saul of Tarsus, focus in on, catch us up with what's going on with Peter. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Peter's Story, Two Powerful Signs. And if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, I encourage you to open up to Acts chapter 9. We're going to pick it up at verse 32. And we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And see what's going on with Peter. So, um, so this new era of peace is broken out. Church is growing rapidly. And verse 32, Peter is now free to travel around the country. And so he went to, uh, to visit the Lord's people. In other words, uh, Jesus' people. Usually in Acts, Lord refers to Jesus. The Lord's people, Jesus' people, who lived in Lydda. Now, we included a map for you today. We're going to start doing that some more often because as we're moving around Acts, it's helpful to kind of get a geographical sense of what's going on. So if you find Lydda on your map, Lydda is 30 miles north and west of the city of Jerusalem. It's modern-day Lud in Israel. And so he's going to travel there, and there he finds a man named Aeneas who's paralyzed and has been bedridden for eight years. So if you've been with us in this series, um, you may remember back in chapter 3, Peter and John go into the temple uh, one day, I think it's about three o'clock, and there, uh, there's a lame man who's been lame since birth, and they heal him. This man has not been lame since birth. He has uh, had a normal life up to this point, but about eight years ago, something happened. We're not sure what, but he either got a disease or had an accident, and so for the last eight years, he has been confined to his bed, and somehow Peter's introduced to him, and so we're going to see a remarkable healing. So he says to him, Aeneas, uh, Jesus Christ heals you. And I love the way he puts that, because what he's saying is that Jesus Christ, who just a few years ago was roaming about healing people, he's still alive and well, he's resurrected, he's still doing that today. And so he said, Jesus heals you, and so get up and roll up your mat. And so immediately, he's healed, and he gets up, and of course, everyone who lives in the area sees this amazing uh, miracle, or hears about it, and they turn to the Lord. And this is what we've seen in Acts, is that often in the early church, and it still happens around the world today, especially in third world countries, where the gospel is moving for the first time. But you often see God authenticating the message of Jesus through miracles. We've seen it through Acts. We've seen it Peter. Uh, we've, we've seen it earlier in Acts that Peter was doing so many healings in Jerusalem that as he'd go through the city streets that they began to put sick people in the, in the streets in the hopes his shadow would actually just hit them. Uh, we don't know if it actually worked or not, but that's how, how the reputation was growing. And so uh, here we see now that persecution is over, so the movement's expanding, and Peter is continuing to do uh, miraculous healings. And so... Next, we're going to skip to Joppa. Now, in Joppa, uh, there's a, a, a woman named Tabitha. Now, Joppa, find Joppa on your map. Joppa's on the seacoast. It's known today as Jaffa. It's sometimes in the news. It's, a, it's kind of a, a suburb of modern-day Tel Aviv. And so uh, Jaffa was a seaport. And uh, so in Jaffa, there's a, uh, a disciple named Tabitha. And notice what she's called. There was a what named Tabitha? Ooh, all right, let's step it up, 11 o'clock, all right. Yeah, that was a test, and you just failed miserably. All right, so, uh, so in verse, uh, let's do it again. So in Joppa, there was a what? 
disciple, yeah, we're going to come back to that. Remember in the early church that the normal everyday Christ follower called disciples, what you called them, and we've seen that over and over in Acts, and we'll see it a couple times today. And so her name is Tabitha. Now, her Greek name is Dorcas. So um, Tabitha is actually her Hebrew name, um, and Dorcas is her Greek name, and they both mean gazelle. Um, and so I just, you know, I'd recommend Tabitha. So let's stick with that. So anyway, so, um, so she was uh, always doing good and she's helping the poor. So she is this amazing Jesus follower, loves God, loves people, and she's just living out her faith. It's really cool. This morning I got an email from uh, some kind of social action council in Ventura County just thanking us because there's been so many life groups that have been going out from Rocky Peak, like in Simi Valley, just fixing up homes of people that are really sick or whatever, or cleaning up, hoarding, whatever, and they're just saying it's making a huge impact, and this lady, she must be a Christian organization, she said one person actually came to Christ recently through this, and just a beautiful thing, and so as a church, we want to be living out our faith, right? We're down in Mexico, we're going to do it locally, because why? Because it opens people's hearts to the gospel that, that, that we really do care, and, and so that's the kind of believer she is, and so she's deeply loved, um, but she's going to get really sick. And so in verse 37, she's really sick. We don't know what she had. And she ends up dying. And they wash her body, which is going to take some time. It's going to prepare her for burial in a tomb. And uh, they're going to place her in an upstairs room because that's what you do with a dead body. And so uh, in verse 38, uh, Lydda was uh, near Joppa. So Lydda is actually 12 miles away from Joppa, which um, like yesterday I went on a hike. And I hiked for 14 miles. And it took me uh, five hours. So about, if you're going to go maybe uh, uh, 12 miles, probably four hours. And that's going to be important for later on. So about a four-hour walk, right? So, um, so Peter is there uh, in, in Joppa, which is about 12 hours away. And uh, these believers hear about it. They hear about this miracle that's going on. And you've got to remember, in the early church, Peter's like a rock star. I mean, the apostle Peter is, um, he's just well-known for the way God's used him in his healings. And we just talked about that in the city of Jerusalem. And so he's close by. And you love this because these believers, they, they heard stories, I'm sure, about Jesus raising the dead. Now Peter, the top apostles nearby, it's like, hey, let's just get him and see what happens, you know? Let's go for it. And so they're going to quickly send two people to go get Peter. Now do the math. So if it's uh, four hours away, you got to go and get Peter, right? That's four hours. You got to find Peter in Joppa, which is probably going to take maybe an hour, right? You've got to come back four hours. That's another hour. You got to stop at In and Out, right? So that's like another hour. So you've probably got at least 10 hours, maybe 10, 12 hours this round trip that needs to happen. And so that's important. So I want you to catch is that this lady died. We don't know what time she died. She could have died in the middle of the night, she could have died in the morning. But however it is, um, it's going to be at least, you know, after they wash your body, it's at least maybe 12 more hours. So it could be the same day, it could be the next day. But time is wasting here because, you know, she's not refrigerated upstairs. We're in the Mediterranean. Her body is going to begin to decompose, and so time is of the essence. So when they find Peter, they said, please come at once. And Peter apparently feels led to go, and so he goes with them. And when he arrives then, so, you know, I mean, she's been up there dead a long time now. Uh, he's taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him. We're going to find out why she, the, one of the things that Dorcas had done is she had made clothing for the poor widows, and so they just loved her. And so the widows stood around. It's a very moving scene. She's crying. She's showing them the robes, other clothing uh, that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. It's very emotional. Now, Peter's going to do something a little weird here, a little different, a little strange. We've never seen this happen in the book of Acts yet. He's going to send everyone out of the room. So normally miracles are very public. You know, they don't, they don't like meet the guy at the temple and say, hey, could you come into the back room, the green room here, and we'll pray for you. I mean, they, it's very public, right? So uh, this is going to be a little different, that he's going to send everyone out of the room. Hey, could I just have some time with the body by myself? And so, um, so he sends everyone out, and then he gets down on his knees and he prays. We'll talk about that more later. And he, then he turns to the, dev, the dead woman, and he just gives a very simple command. Tabitha, get up. And she immediately opens her eyes, and she sees Peter, and she sits up. And you just wonder, like, what was that moment like, right? Um, can you picture that? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, like, she opens, she sees Peter, and it's like, do I know you? Right? It's like, I'm Peter. 
Peter, yeah, Apostle, Apostle Peter, I've heard of you. Thanks so much for coming. I really needed some help. You know, I mean, I, like, you just kind of wonder. Like, he's like, yeah, well, I'm just curious. What was it like? You know, I mean, anyway. But uh, eventually, after their conversation, he's going to call everyone's outside. So he's going to call everyone. Hey, Ollie, Ollie, oxen free. You know, you can come in. And so they come in. And uh, when they come in, they're just blown away. Um, he calls for the believers, and especially the widows that were, were so sad. He presents her alive. And so this becomes known all over Joppa. And once again, as is kind of typical, uh, that many people believe in the Lord. People come to Christ as God kind of validates the message. And so Peter is now he's going to stay in Joppa. We're going to pick him up there. Luke's going to pick him up uh, next week in Joppa. As next week, uh, honestly, we come to one of the biggest uh, and most important events in all of church history, and that's no exaggeration. I choose the words carefully. And uh, so Peter stays at Joppa for some time with a man who's a tanner. He's a leather worker named Simon. All right, so that's the passage. What I want to do in the time of day, I want to focus on a couple things. I want to focus a little bit on these miracles, two amazing miracles that, that uh, Peter does, especially this raising from the dead. We've never seen that in Acts before. This is the high point of miracles in Acts so far. But, um, but especially on the transformation that's taken place in the Apostle Peter. Sometimes we forget this, but Peter had met Jesus maybe five, six, seven years before at this point, as we put the timeline together. So he really not met Jesus that long ago, and yet here in the stage raises from the dead. So we want to talk about the transformation in his life. And so topic on the table is Transformation 101. Um, and so there in your note sheet, we have a section that's called Peter's Story, One Changed Life. And I'm only going to have one principle for you today, but don't get your hopes up because we're going to be here a long time. Um, so we've got one big picture principle. We're going to spend quite a bit of time with that. And we're going to come back and ask one kind of quick question, uh, but it's a really important question at the end to apply it to our life. So let's jump in. So here's the big picture today, uh, kind of the takeaway from this, uh, this passage of Peter's life, is that God's vision for your life, my life, but God's vision is transformation. And so this is a really big uh, idea that when you come to Jesus, that God's vision for your life is much more than conversion and the changes that happen that first couple of years you come to Jesus, that his vision for your life is a complete and total deep radical transformation from the inside out of who you are to where you're trans- transformed to be like him. Now we're going to talk about some more about that. So, um, you know, let me start with a question. If um, I were to ask you, like, let's say you had a friend at work that maybe you've been sharing Christ with a little bit, or they know you're a believer, and they came up to you and they asked you, hey, what does it mean to be a Christian? I've watched your life. I've, I'm kind of missing something in mind. I'm interested in, you know, Christian, Christianity, what Christians believe. So what does it mean to become a Christian? How do you become a Christian? The question is, what would you say? And my hunch would be that for many of us, we would say something like this. There'd be certain key words, code words, we might say. In here, we might say something like this. Well, to become a Christian, you mean need to receive Jesus into your life as your personal Lord and Savior um, so that you can receive forgiveness of sins, there's death for you, um, and so you can be then uh, uh, go to heaven when you die. Maybe something like that. Now, I'm not saying we would all say that, but I think a lot of us would say something like that. And I want to put neon lights around this, that that's not necessarily wrong, um, but it is dreadfully incomplete. It's woefully short. It is a stick, the stick figure compared to a beautiful painting. Um, it is the, the black and white versus 3D surround sound, right? So that's so much rugs, it's inadequate. Um, so last week we talked about conversion. A uh, topic on the table is conversion 101. We talked about this. When someone comes to Jesus, what happens? We said super, certain supernatural changes when someone comes to Christ. And so we talked about um, a couple in particular I want to highlight again. We talked about that when someone comes to Jesus, the, the eyes of their heart is open. And for the first time, they understand who Jesus is and why he came in such a way that allows them to turn to Jesus in faith, trust him, and turn away from our past and rebellion and sin, right? We turn to, that's one thing that happens. The second thing that happens, remember, as we talk, we, we are organically linked to Jesus, um, and so we now share through his spirit um, his life, his death, his resurrection. So Christ has come to live in us. We share the benefits of all he went through for us, and so that now we have a new power in our life, the power of Jesus in us 
to die to our old life, to rise with him to a new life. And this kind of happens automatically when we come to Christ. So the biblical way of talking about it is we're in Christ. Christ is in us, and we are in Christ. There's this organic thing. Okay, so here's the thing. When that happens, when someone comes to Jesus, there's usually some significant changes that happen right away. Now, if you became a Christian when you're four years old or eight years old, it may not be as obvious to you. It may be, but it may not be as obvious. But if you came to Christ later on, like later on, I'll talk from some, about some stories from my life group this week. But if you came to Christ later on in life, that um, there's going to be some fairly radical, fairly significant changes happen. No one's going to tell you. It's just going to happen. Uh, friends and relatives are going to say, what happened to you? That's a common question. What's with you? What happened to you? Something happened. Uh, and so, uh, so uh, and, and during that first couple of years you follow Jesus, we often go through huge changes in our lifestyle, our choices, our values, right? And it's a beautiful thing. But here's what I want you to catch. That is the first chapter of our story, not the last chapter of our story. And often we confuse the first chapter as the last chapter. Like, let me get an illustration. Uh, how many of you have ever been in a delivery room and personally witnessed the birth of a child? Can I see your hands? Okay. That's a pretty amazing experience. I know it's a big deal for the wives or the moms, but can I tell you, it is a big deal if you're a man. It is shocking. <laughs> like, you're, you're watching, you're like, that is impossible. Like, that just... A bowling ball just came out. This is crazy, right? And I remember first time it happened, I was 25 years old. I'm like, first time I was like, oh my gosh, we've all came into the world that way? It's amazing. It's like, it's, it actually works. And you're like, why didn't anyone tell me about this? This is crazy. Yeah. Uh, and so when that happened, it's like a miracle. You're like, whoa, you know? And in those opening first few hours and the baby comes out and it's just so beautiful or ugly, depending, and, and so uh, wrinkled and funny looking, and, but alive and kicking, and, and hopefully it's, everything's working well. It's amazing, right? And if you, if you chase that child down, you watch that child develop over the next couple of years, it's amazing how much they grow. Like I have my granddaughter right now, uh, and my youngest granddaughter is 16 months old, and it's just amazing the changes that have gone through her life, and you just document every one, right? And you cherish every one, and Everyone's so excited. Now, when my own children were first born, I wasn't so amazed. I'm going to tell you because I was honestly a little disappointed because, um, like, I remember when my first daughter was born and she came out and I said, well, what does she do? <laughs> and my wife said, what do you mean? i like, well, when's she going to turn over? Oh, that takes a long time. Are you serious? I've been waiting for nine months and she can't turn over? <laughs> It's like puppies do much better. And that's like shorter gestation, you know. Um, but, but now, you know, I've kind of learned. So, uh, with, so with every stage in the game, you're excited, right? They begin to turn over. You're very excited. And then they, they begin to learn to crawl in such a big, momentous thing. And then they begin to walk, and it's so fun. And then, you know, about two, they're going to start to talk. And it's so amazing, right? And it's just really exciting. And so the whole birth process in that first couple of years, so much change is going on, and it's so exciting, right? But what's so exciting that first couple of years would be super sad if you had a 25-year-old that was still taking their first steps. You had a 25-year-old who so was just learning to form their first words. What's really exciting at two years is really sad. Something went really wrong at 25. Are you with me with this? And as followers of Jesus, here's what happens. We come to Christ. We think the first two years are normative. The changes are so amazing. It's so profound. Our old life and new life, it's so different that we think that conversion, the first two years, are the end of the story. The reality is, it is just the start of the story. God's vision, so much bigger. And so you see that in the Apostle Peter. Like today we're going to study a story. And uh, often I remind you that, that Luke and Acts are volume one and two the same, by the same author designed to be read together. And that's really important for moments like this because if you were to read through 
uh, just at one sitting. Sit down, read Acts, and then read Luke, and then read through Acts through chapter 9. I think one of the things that you would be blown away with is the transformation in the Apostle Peter. I mean, you would watch over a couple of hour period of time, and over a, maybe a five, six, seven year period of time, a radical transformation in Peter. We miss it because we don't read it like that. But if you were to read through, I think you couldn't miss it. It's like, man, what happened to this guy? And like Luke, Luke in his volume one, he first introduces us to Peter, or one of the first introductions this is in chapter five. <coughs> and I want to, uh, I'm just going to tell the story, save some time. But in chapter five of Luke, we meet, we meet Peter. So Jesus is getting really popular. Crowds are coming from all over to hear him teach and preach and heal the sick and cast out demons. And, and so the crowds are crowding around. So he goes to Peter. And for those of you who've been to Israel, you can picture this, the shores uh, like Capernaum right there. Um, then he goes to Peter, and he says, hey, Peter, um, and, and they didn't know each other super well at this point. He says, hey, it would be okay if we used your boat. I'd like to go out in your little boat and then teach offshore, which is great. People can't get to me, and I get some distance, but also uh, great acoustics, speaking over the water, all the water. So Peter says, for sure, they go out. He teaches probably for a few hours, I think, that's what he already did. And when he gets done, uh, he says to Peter, hey, let's go out. Uh, I feel like going fishing. You know, it's a great day for fishing. Why don't we go fishing? And um, if you know anything about fishing in the Sea of Galilee, you know this is ridiculous. All fishing in the Sea of Galilee is done in the middle of the night. Fishermen would have fished from approximately 3 in the morning to 6 in the morning. And the reason is, when it's dark, the fish can't see your net, for one thing. But secondly, during, the, uh, during the, uh, in that time of the day, the warm water rises to the surface of the lake and fish rise with it. And so it's perfect time for fishing. To fish in the middle of the day makes no sense because the fish, during the heat of the day, they dive to the bottom of the lake. It's a deep lake where the water's cool, and they can see nets. It makes no sense. And so Peter tries to politely kind of push back and tell Jesus he doesn't know what he's talking about. Right? <laughs> and he just, you can, if you read between the lines of the text, you sense it. He's like, uh, it's really, you know. And uh, Jesus says, no, no, that's why I want to do this. And so, you know, Jesus wins, and so they go out, and you can almost hear him. You can almost hear him like, look, you stick to the teaching and healing. I'll do the fishing, right? But then you go, oh, you know, what are you going to say? It's Jesus. So, okay, you know, you're going to be polite to the pastor, even though he doesn't know anything about cars. So anyway, um, <laughs> you go out, and uh, they let down the net. And the moment he lets it down, boom, huge school of fish hit the net so much so that it's sinking his little boat as they try to bring it in. And so he's panicking, calling his partners in their little boat to come over to help try to, you know, land this thing. And all of a sudden, lights go on for Peter. You know, however he saw Jesus before, this was like lights going on. Uh, it was really much like a conversion experience. I mean, I don't know if it was or wasn't at that moment, but it, it really kind of sounds like it. Because what happens is that all of a sudden he realizes Jesus is much more than he thought. His eyes are open to see who Jesus is. And he also, his eyes are open to realize who he is. And so there's, there's a deep step of faith and repentance at this moment. And what he actually says, remember the, the, the boat is full of fish, right? It's almost sinking because of the fish. It says he falls on his knees in the midst of that slimy fish. And he says, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. That's a quote. But Jesus, of course, already knew he's a sinful man. Like, the point he took him out fishing was so that Peter would know that. And so now Peter is in on reality. And so Jesus says, this is why I've come after you to rescue. And so he says, um, follow me and I will make you a what? Fisher of men. And so he uses that analogy. You fish for fish. I can teach you how to fish for people. Uh, you understand that. And so, um, so Peter leaves everything to follow Jesus. So this sounds like a conversion to me. You got an eyes open to who Jesus is, turning to him in faith, turning away from his sin, I'm a sinful man, and dropping everything and falling. Sounds like a conversion, right? But what we see here is that over the next three years, Peter's going to have a lot of ups and downs in his spiritual journey. For example, Peter is going to be the only disciple that walks on water, which is amazing. But as you remember the story, that he also is the one who has to be rescued from the waves because his faith is going to fail. Peter is going to be the one, when Jesus takes his disciples to Caesarea Philippi up in the north, those of you who've been in the big cave area, uh, when he takes him there and he says, who do you say that I am? Peter is the one who's going to speak up first time and say, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And yet, 
Moments later, Jesus is going to have to rebuke him publicly for getting in the way of his true messianic calling, and he's going to say, "Depart or get, by, uh, get behind me, Satan, if you don't know what you're doing. Right? Highs and lows. Peter is going to be the one at the Last Supper when, you know, communion, uh, Passover is happening. At the Last Supper, Peter is going to be the one that I don't care about what the rest of these guys do. They can run for their lives if they want, but I don't care what danger you're in. I'm ready to go down with you. I'll die with you. And yet three hours later, or uh, later, a few hours later, he denies any association with Jesus three times to save his own skin, right? So we see the highs and lows of Peter, don't we? The, The strengths and weaknesses. And what's beautiful, though, is that throughout this journey, Jesus' love for Peter never, never fluctuates. It's not like he loves him more on the good days than the bad days, you know? It's not like, awesome, Peter, I do love you, you know? Like, oh, Peter, I'm sick of you. I mean, it's like, uh, he just loves Peter, and he continues to shepherd him and continues to teach him, and Peter continues to grow. After the resurrection, Jesus, remember, restores Peter in John 21, and uh, and kind of reaffirms his calling on his life. And then what we've seen in Acts after the Holy Spirit comes, in chapter 3, it's Peter who stands up on the day of Pentecost and gives the first message. And 3,000 people come to Jesus, right? It's Peter who is in John, uh, John 3, I mean in uh, uh, Acts 3, when he's with um, John, that uh, it's Peter who heals the, lame, the man lame from birth, and then which leads to his arrest. And it's Peter and John who stand up in front of the same people that executed Jesus two months before and said, hey, you do what you have to do, but we cannot stop teaching. I mean, there's been amazing transformation. It's Peter who is shepherding the move, movement of Jesus with great wisdom and passion and courage and power. Uh, it's Peter that God's using to do all these miracles uh, but when you get to chapter 9 today, in many ways, it's the pinnacle. In many ways, today, uh, you're going to see this, this power being unleashed in a new way. He's going to do something we've never seen in the book of Acts. He's going to raise someone from the dead. Now, we get kind of used to that in the Bible. But, uh, you know, take it from me. This is pretty big, right? Um, you know, try it sometime. So, um, so anyway... Um, What's really interesting to me today is as you read this account, and, and as I was doing my study in preparation for this message, I was first reading it, and I'm like going, hey, wait a second. These two healings today, they sound a lot like a couple healings back in volume one of Luke that Jesus did. And sure enough, as I'm researching out, scholars have all noticed this. Right? And so we don't have time to go through both of them. The healing of Aeneas, the paralyzed man, is very much similar to some of the sequences and the verbiage and dialogue very similar to the healing of the man let down through the ceiling in, Luke's, in volume one of Luke. But I want to point out the similarities in the second, the healing of Dorcas, because it's even more remarkable. And so there in your note sheet, there's the account of the healing that takes place in in, in Luke. Now, we, this is the story we started the day with. Some of you may have guessed this. I'm going to recognize this. Um, remember, we started the day with the story of this father who is desperate to get to this person, and they're fighting through the crowds. And they have a 12-year-old daughter, only daughter. She's really sick, but all the doctors can't heal her. She might be soon dying. That man is a man named Jairus. He's a Jewish leader of the synagogue, and he has come to Jesus, maybe last resort, we don't know, but he says, would you please come? It's desperate. Jesus says, yes, but on the way there, the daughter passes away. And so they get word from someone from the house, don't bother Jesus anymore, she's gone. But Jesus says, hey, just keep trusting me, it's going to be okay. And they, they come on. So when they get there, uh, the house is full of friends, family, mourners. And we're going to pick up the account in volume one of Luke of this healing of Jairus' daughter, the 12-year-old girl. So here we go. So in verse, uh, chapter, in, in Luke 8, it says, when he, Jesus, arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him. Catch that. Kind of set everyone out. He made some exceptions. Peter, James, and John, his inner circle are going to stay. He wants them to witness this. There's a reason. Um, and he's going to let the parents stay. Um, and so... It says they didn't let anyone else go in except Peter, James, and John, John, James, and the child's father and mother. 
Meanwhile, all the rest of the people are put out. So these are people that are wailing, they're mourning, a lot of crying going on. And um, he goes to this girl, 12-year-old, and he just very simply takes her by the hand. He says, my child, get up. Very simple command. My child, get up. Um, and, um, and immediately, of course, she opens her eyes. And uh, she's, and, well, I'm in the second, I'm the wrong, second one. So he takes her by the hand. He says, my child, get up. And her spirit returns. And at once she stands up. And then Jesus says, let's get her something to eat. Kind of practically takes care of her, Okay. Now, imagine you've just read that in volume one, you're reading through, and you get to volume two, you get to chapter nine, and we see this event with Peter. And so Peter went with them. So similar scenario, uh, someone's come after Peter and asked him to come, and he's agreed, much like Jesus. And when he arrives, he's taken upstairs in the room. So he walks in the room, there's this dead woman there, and again, once again, a lot of crying going on. They got the widows around him crying, showing him the robes, the outer clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with him. And Peter, what does he do? He sends him out of the room. Now, this is really interesting to me. This has never happened before in Acts. But he says, um, could you just give me a moment with the dead woman by myself? Okay. So they all leave. And then he kneels down and he prays, something Jesus didn't do. That's unique. And then he turns towards the dead woman, and he just gives her a very simple command kind of almost identical, Tabitha, get up. And she opens her eyes, comes alive, and she sees Peter, she sits up. So he takes her by the hand, helps her to the feet, calls in the believers, the widows, and presents her. And here's the thing. I think as you, if you were to read these kind of back-to-back, volume one, volume two, and this is why so many scholars have noted this, it'd be almost impossible to miss the similarities. In both situations, you have the healer summoned a distance. At both situations, when the healer arrives, the person is dead. In both situations, they clear the room. In both situations, they give a very simple command. And you can see this in English, but it's even more profound in the original. It's Almost, it's virtually identical command in the original language. Like it's one letter off. In both situations, there's immediate response. In both situations, reunited and practical care is given. And what's really interesting is the one thing that's different in the account is that Peter's going to kneel down and pray. And it doesn't tell us what he's praying but I think this is how it goes. You can take it for what it's worth. But uh, I think that the moment that Peter walked in the room and saw that dead woman, I think it was like deja vu. I think it was like, I've been here before. I think it's a flashback. I think that the, he walks in and he's like, I've been here before. That Jairus daughter thing that's just emblazoned on his mind. He walks in, sees this dead woman. And so what does he do? He's like, let's see, how did Jesus do this? I think he cleared the room. All right, step one, let's clear the room. And, I, and after everyone's gone, he kneels down and prays. We don't know what he prays, but I think he went something like this. Jesus, I know you can do this. I was there with Jairus' daughter. I'll never forget that day. And just like I just told Aeneas that Jesus Christ heals you, I know you can do this. I know this is big that uh, I've never asked you for this before. I've never seen you do this before, but I believe you can do this. And then he gets some praying, and he says the exact words that Jesus said to Jairus' daughter. Just changes the name, and he says, Tabitha, get up. And she comes back alive, and she, she wakes up. But I want you to catch, the student has become like the teacher. He's only met Jesus five, six, seven years ago, but this is almost like full cycle now. That, that day in the boat, Jesus said to him, he said, follow me, and I will make you like me, a fisher. How was Jesus fishing for men? He was on the shore teaching and healing. How is Peter fish for men in Acts? He's, he's teaching and healing. And now he's come to his biggest test. And he trusts in Jesus he raises a little girl. The students become like a teacher. And this is exactly what Jesus said is his, was his goal. 
In fact, if you look on your, your um, note sheet, Luke chapter 6, verse 4, Luke is the only gospel that records this. I think it was very important to Luke. It's a very important statement for Luke that Jesus said. Jesus said that a student is not above his teacher. In other words, not better, faster, brighter. But everyone who is fully what? Trained. Trained. We'll come back to that. Will be like his teacher. So here's what's interesting to me about this statement of Jesus. Guess what the word for student is in this passage? Disciple. I pointed this out last week, this week. Early followers, they weren't called Christians, they weren't called Christ, they called disciples. We've seen it over and over in Acts, right? There's only one place in all the New Testament where the Greek word for disciple, which is mathetes, there's only one place in the whole New Testament where it's not translated as disciple. It's right here. I think it's because the translators are afraid, like we wouldn't really understand what a disciple is in cultural context, and so they changed it to student. But what Jesus said is a a disciple is not higher, smarter, faster than his teacher. In other words, in that culture, there were everyone had disciples. I mean, you know, like it wasn't just Jesus had disciples. Jesus twelve disciples. You know, I think it's like Snow White and some dwarfs or something. It's like it's not like that. It's like in the culture, leaders had followers. They're called disciples. So in the New Testament. Um, sometimes they're referred to the disciples of John the Baptist. You may remember reading that. Uh, the, the one place, disciples of the Pharisees. So people had disciples. And the goal of a disciple in that culture was to become like the person you're following, like the rabbi. So this was very different from our educational system. Like if I go to college and I take courses, I might take a biology course, I might completely disagree with my professor in terms of their lifestyle, their choices, their belief system, their worldview. It could be completely different, but that's fine. I'm there just to learn about biology, right? So I'm not trying to become like them. I'm trying to learn biology. But in Jewish culture, it was completely different. When you followed someone, you became a disciple, your goal was to live your life just like them. Like if you're a disciple of the Pharisees, it was to learn how they thought, learn how they acted, learn how they made choices, to live your life just like the Pharisees. You're a disciple of John the Baptist. You follow him. How do I do my life? Uh, There was a a saying that uh, uh, the rabbis used to say sometimes that the the goal of the disciple is to to gain the dust of his rabbi. You want to follow so close to your rabbi that you're kicking up the dust because you're following that close to your rabbi. So the whole goal of being a disciple is to become like uh, like the master, like the teacher, like the rabbi. And now once you understand that, if you go back to this passage, you see what Jesus says. He says, a disciple is not above his rabbi, right? And this just makes sense. It's not smarter, better. This is what happened to Peter on the boat, that all of a sudden he realized Jesus was so much bigger, uh, higher, better than he thought. And he's like, he just wasn't worth the, worthy to be in his presence. And so... That's where he realized that. He said, but everyone who's fully trained. Now, here's the word. In Greek, the word is kartidzo. And let me give you some synonyms. Uh, It means to be restored. It means to be made right. It means to be mended. So like when the disciples are on the boat mending their nets, that's kartidzo. And so Jesus says, hey, the disciple is not above his teacher, the rabbi, but once you're fully trained, once you're fully restored, once you're fully made right, once your life is mended, you'll be like the teacher. So what Jesus is saying, he's defining what it means to be a disciple. Are you with me in this? And so when we read in Acts, the disciples did this, the disciples did that, or there was a woman named Tabitha, and she was a disciple, or all the disciples, they sent two disciples after Peter. We've seen this over and over. Jesus is defining what it means to be a disciple. What it means to be a disciple is more than conversion. It is transformation. It's to become fully like our teacher. You say, in what ways? In our attitudes, Like in the current elections, what would Jesus' attitude be towards our political process right now? 
Like, I'm not, I'm not taking a position here. I'm just saying, but the goal of a, of a disciple is to say, how would Jesus respond to dueling candidates that we're seeing in our culture? How would he respond to that? I want to respond like Jesus would respond. Uh, the goal of a disciple is to take the attitudes, the actions. Catch this one, big one, the emotions, the reactions, the values, the priorities, the life choices. Are we with me? The goal of being a disciple of Jesus is to become like Jesus. That's the vision. So the vision is so much bigger than conversion. Conversion is chapter one of your story. It's the first step, your first two years of life as a follower of Jesus. But the goal is you grow up to be a fully mature adult in the kingdom of God like your big brother, like Jesus. So it leads to an important question there. So there in your note sheet, uh, you have a section called Transformation 101, and the big question, and I have just one question, and it's very simple, but it's extremely profound, and it's very important. And it goes like this. My big question for you, if, if, if you're here and a follower of Jesus, now if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then your first step is to give your life to Jesus, ask him to come into your life and start this journey. But if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, the question I have for you is, are you changing? Like with those who know you best, your closest family, friends, coworkers, relatives, would those who know you best say that you aren't changing? You're a different person today than you were six months ago, a year ago, three years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Because what we're seeing is that God's vision is change. If we're not changing, like a two-year-old that stops, it's just, something's wrong. And so if we're not changing, something is wrong. And so what happens is we tend to mistake, like I said earlier, the, the first change of becoming to Christ, we, 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 um, we, we mistake that for the Christian life. Like, let me give you some examples. I want to flesh this out because I think this would be helpful. This week in my life group, and I asked him for permission, by the way, um, but this week my life group, you know, being my life group is kind of weird because it's like, what did Pastor Michael mean when he said, you know, and anyway, but... Uh, so we're in my group, and, and the topic is Conversion 101. And so I asked my group, now, uh, understandably, some people in my group, including myself, came to Jesus very young. And if you come to Jesus when you're four or eight, there's probably not major life change. You know? Get that. Okay? So it's going to be different. But I asked people, when you came to Jesus, what were the first organic, supernatural changes that happened at conversion? Not, not like what people started telling you to do, so you tried to do, but just the organic, supernatural, it just happened to you. Like, you know how this is, right? When you become a Christian, something happens, and people around you are like, what happened to you? Just certain changes. I said, so what would be some of the first things? And so uh, one guy said, well, you know, I grew up in a pretty rough part of town. And he said, so, um, so one of the things I learned early is I needed to have foul language, because that's why you showed how tough and bad you were. It's like you helped you set up fights or whatever. And so he said, I had a horrible mouth when I came to Jesus. Uh, He said, and right away, when I gave my life to Jesus, it's like those words would hardly come out of my mouth anymore. Now, I realize that for some of you came to Jesus, and that's not your problem. You still have that problem. Uh, (laughs) So I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying this is his story, all right? Uh, But for him, he came to Jesus, and he said, it's almost like they wouldn't come out. And if they did come out, I just felt like it was a big deal. And no one had told me that, but it was just, I just felt this is a shame or repentance or, God, I'm so sorry. If I get a kid, I'd go sit in the corner, you know. He, he's just, and he said, the other thing was, is that I had been one to hold grudges in my life. And so anytime time would offend me, I, would hold, I had all these grudges. And he said, when I came to Jesus, I just had this compelling sense. I needed to make those relationships right. So he said, I got on the phone. And I said, I started calling people all the way back to high school. No one told him to do this. It's just this organic connection with Jesus, who's the peacemaker, right, who's supposed to do it. A second person, I love this story. Uh, he said that when, that when he came to Jesus, um, he was a woman chaser. And he, so he'd go bar hopping all the time and pick up women and spend the night with them, that whole, whole deal. And he said that uh, his favorite drink was scotch. So after he came to Jesus, he went to a bar next time, and he orders his drink of a scotch. And the drink comes, and it tasted horrible. And he sends it back. He says, I asked for scotch. 
And the guy said, it is scotch. He said, well, this is lousy. Give me a different bottle. He went through three different sh- uh, glasses of, 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 uh, of that. And it's just like, they all tasted horrible to him. It's like his taste buds had changed. And then God began to lead him in the next 10 years that he, he got, in his personal life, he felt called not to drink for like the next 10 years. As a believer, he felt like God was calling him not to drink. And he couldn't even put it away. Just in the Holy Spirit was telling him that. He didn't even know why. But after the 10 years, he figured it out. For him, chasing women and scotch went together. Scotch was the trigger that was the habit, triggered the habit of chasing women. So you avoid the, the scotch, it makes not chasing women a lot easier. Right? No one told him that. Hey, you've just come to Jesus. Here's the trick, you know. Stop the scotch, you know. It's, it's all about the scotch. It's just, you know, Holy Spirit stuff, you know. Uh, another person, she had been kind of abused in her life growing up a lot. She hated people. She came to Jesus about 30. She hated people. She said she would think about killing people. She said, I never had the courage to do it, but I would think about killing people. The moment I came to Jesus, this huge forgiveness came in my life. I just began to love people, and I wanted to give to people. It's like this gift of giving. It's just like forgiving and giving. Another woman shared how when she came to Jesus, that uh, she came out of the church where she had given her life to Christ, and she walked out. Uh, it was here in L.A. There's billboards everywhere. She never even noticed them. The moment she came out, it was like a, a drastic sense of darkness and light, that many of those billboards were wrong. They were evil. There was something wrong with them. Right? Just, and no one told her this. Hey, when you come to Jesus, check out the billboard. It just happened. Right? So, so what happens, catch this, is we come to Jesus, and we get saved, and our life radically changes and that first couple of years, we radically change, and it's like night and day, and it's so different to us. We look back and wonder who we were before. We're a new creation in Christ, but here's where we make a mistake. The mistake is we think, I'm done growing now. We think, I'm so different than I was before. And when you make that mistake, you stop growing in some of the most important areas of life. Like, I've known men that have come to Jesus, and they've given up the promiscuity, and they've, they're faithful to their wives now, and, and they've given up a, a lot of stuff, and it just came naturally, right? But they're still angry men who are angry with their kids and angry with their spouse, and there's outbursts of anger. But here's the thing. They don't see it as a problem because they look at who I am now versus who I was before, and I'm so different, and this is not that big of a deal. You meet followers of Jesus, they've not surrendered their finances, they still do their finances the same way. They've never grown in the way they manage their finances, they've never grown in learning to be a giver to God's kingdom. You meet people that they follow Jesus, had a radical life change, but they, there's still certain people, I'll never forget, I'll forgive her else, but I won't forgive this person. I could go on and on and on. And what happens is, we think conversion is the end of the story, and so we get stuck as two-year-olds. And you say, is a two-year-old amazing? Yes. The new birth is amazing. And if you're around a two-year-old, it's amazing. But it's not amazing if you're still two 25 years later. Something's desperately wrong. And so we measure ourselves by the wrong yardstick. We measure ourselves by the change before Christ and after Christ instead of after Christ and where we should be now. And so the question is, are you growing? Are you changing? Is your passion for God growing? Is your love of his word deepening? Is your understanding of the things of God being transformed? Is your mind being transformed? Are you moving past the anger Are you growing in your forgiveness? Is bitterness being replaced by love? Are your priorities changing? Is your focus on what's most important? Are you loving God? Are you loving people? Are you becoming a joy to be around? I'm telling you, there's some people, and I've met a few here at Rocky Peak, not too many, and I'm not mentioning any names. (laughs) But it's like, are you serious? You've known Jesus for 50 years, and you're one of the crankiest people I've ever met. And you're like, what? And it's like, like, oh, well, that's just the way she is. Hey, that's like something has gone wrong, right? Something is seriously wrong. 
If we're not growing and changing, something is wrong. And here's what I found out uh, over, you know, we were talking about this in my life group. Why does this happen? I think there's two reasons that come to my mind. Number one is a lack of clear vision. That many times we grow up in circles where it's all about getting saved. There's saved people, and so you got saved, and and now you're saved. It's like you're saved, you're in. And it's kind of, that's the end of the vision. And so what happens then is that we don't really understand this whole New Testament teaching about transformation, student like the teacher. We don't really get that. We've never really been taught that. And this is like new stuff. It's like an awakening, like, oh my goodness, I missed it. How did I miss this? Because it's throughout the New Testament, you know, a million different metaphors. Be recreated to become like our creator. You'll be the firstborn, that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. He becomes our big brother. We become a family like, I mean, there's metaphor after, how do we miss this? And so for some of you, that may be it. But the the bigger reason, because the Holy Spirit's really good at uh, at this, I think often the bigger reason, so the first reason is kind of a lack of good teaching in your life. But the second reason, these often go together, is disobedience. Often what happens when we first come to Jesus, we're so excited about him, we're quick to obey. And we're quick to follow, and we're quick to listen, and he's very patient, because we, we're just learning, and he just teaches us stuff, and we learn that even when we follow you. But it comes to a certain point that he expects us to listen and follow. And what happens is we come to a certain point where we say no to Jesus on some big issue in our life. And here's what we think. We think, you know what? I've obeyed him in so many others. I'm just going to wait. I'm not ready for this one. I'll come back to it later. I'll just keep growing and come back. But that is not what happens. When Jesus leads you to an issue and you say no, like I've talked about before, it's like a dimmer switch gets turned down. You lose even the insight that you have. You start going backwards. And the reason is whatever you say no to has become your God. Jesus has identified this next step, and you say, no, what, this is more important than you. This has become your God. When you begin worshiping a false God, you go backwards. The light goes out. And so many times in our life, whether it's from lack of vision and good teaching or whether it's a, a, a disobedience, that we get stuck, developmentally stuck. And as a result, our lives don't change. And we don't become transformed. And catch this. We don't become a transforming agent in our community, in our families, in our marriages, in our workplace, and in the world. And so the question I have for you is, are you changing? And so I want you to listen very carefully right now, because I'm going to say something that's going to cause a lot of you to put your note sheet away and put your pen away and put your, uh, turn your phones off. And I want you to do that, all right? We're going to go into a time of communion right now. And during this time of communion, where Jesus gave his body for us, his blood for us, so that students could become like the master, that's the whole point, that in this time of communion, my question for you is, are you changing? And if the answer is yes, then I want you, as you come to communion, just to thank Jesus for his ongoing work in your life. Just pray he'll continue for his grace, his mercy, his leadership, that you would listen and follow. And if the answer is no, if you're not changing, then what I would ask you to do is you would get alone and spend some time with the Lord and get on your knees, whether figuratively or literally, and you say, Jesus, I need to go back where I started this journey. I need to go back and get on my knees in the midst of the messy fish of my life, kind of the mess I've made in my life, and I need to ask you to forgive me for starting but not continuing to follow. And here's what I tell you, that if you lead me, this time I will follow. As you lead me, empower me, I will listen I will follow because I want everything you have. I want to be changed, and I want to be used to change the world. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to be going into the season of uh, communion right now. And and if you're brand new, I want to tell you how it's going to work. Around the room and here at the front and the back, up at top, there are different communion stations. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I would encourage you not to take communion because it's a sign of covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This new relationship through the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus we're made right with God and the Spirit's given to transform us. And so if you haven't yet given your life to Jesus, I encourage you to wait until you do. So it be really uh, meaningful when you do. But as you come to receive communion, just encourage you to maybe take the elements and, and fan out, find a place.
place of worship. The band's going to be playing. Lead us in worship. Join in. Listen. Let it flow over you. Whatever feels right. But spend some time with the Lord. And talk to him about this vision he has for your life. And, uh, and just ask him to come and lead us uh, every step of the way. Amen? Amen. Lord, that's our confession today, that you are good. That when we said, get away from us, we are a sinful man, we're a sinful woman. That you said, no, that's why I've come. And you came after us, and you have a vision for our lives. And so, God, we pray that we would be pursuing you full on, that we would not stop at two years old, and the change is there. We'd continue to grow and change, sometimes faster, sometimes slower. But one step at a time, we'd follow you, be transformed, become student like the teacher. We pray as we bring you our gifts, our offerings now, as we continue in worship, we thank you for your amazing love. God, we pray that as a church, we'd go deeper and deeper in that love that would free us up from the fears of following, that sometimes when the, when the obedience is hard, we're afraid of what will happen, and just to know that you love us so much, it frees us up, that you would only ask us to do something good. And so we pray, God, as we bring you our tithes and our offerings, you'd meet us now in worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Hey, may this be a week of growth and transformation. We ask honest questions. Lord, what do you want to do in my life today? How do you want to use me? And we just listen and follow. And as we just take step by step, it's how we change. It's one little step at a time. And may this be a week of growth and change for you. If there's anything in your life you would need prayer about today or like prayer, we have a great team over here by the far wall. They have uh, name badges. I'd love to pray with you about anything. Next week, we come to probably the biggest event, one of the biggest events in all of church history. And uh, no exaggeration there. It's going to change the whole course of the movement of Jesus. It has tremendous implications for our lives. So next week, we're going to be talking about new paradigms. I hope you can join us, and I'll see you then. God bless.